everybody. This is Olu Dara, right out of Ann Arbor. Listen to 88.3 WCBN FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I like it. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Matthew Gavin Frank is here in the studio. Um, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having can, me, T. Can, can I call you Matt? Of course you may. <laughs> and you're just, you're driving in. You've been on the road. It's Monday, August 4th. Um, a happy birthday to Katie Hartsock out there in the world. Um, and, and Matt, you were coming in from Grand Rapids, was it, on the, the Midwestern book tour That's leg? It. Yeah, I drove in from Grand Rapids uh, this afternoon. So, mm-hmm. and, and, so and where are you headed next after Ann Arbor? Uh, I'm going to the large town of Petoskey, Michigan. Oh, great. <laughs> I hope you get a chance to look for some of the stones yeah. along the, the lake. Those, uh, yeah, those fabled Petoskey stones. I'll keep my eyes open. Yeah. <laughs> and the next book, <laughs> Searching for the Giant Petoskey. <laughs> 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 I, I, I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm receiving inspiration. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm sure you do. you've got enough good ideas of your own. Is my sense of things, Matt. You don't need any any of mine. But you're you're on tour for your book, preparing the ghost, um, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. And this book just out um, with Live Right, uh, a division of W. W. Norton and Company. Um, and so we were you were saying, Matt, that you're doing the Midwest western leg now and then right. you go to the northeast and then in the later the west that's right so, yeah so folks could go to your website probably and see some of like where they could find you click on the events tab and it'll all come up um i'm, tra- I'm trying to update it from motel rooms around the country right now so uh i've fallen a little bit behind but i think they're all there now so it's a great site that remind me of the name is it is it matthew gavin frank.com um matthew g frank uh-huh yeah okay. yeah so leaving a little mystery there in the <laughs> url <laughs> g <laughs> Before we go any further, I'll just read uh, the bio out of the back of, of Matt's book. Matthew Gavin Frank has previously written about everything from Italian winemaking to the social hierarchies of a pop farm in California. He teaches creative writing and lives in Marquette, Michigan. And should we do a shout out to Louisa too now? <laughs> 
<laughs> How are you, baby? <laughs> Oh, well, it's great to have you here. And um, you're, the the books that you've, you know, like the ideas that you work with, like this Italian winemaking, who wouldn't want to explore and investigate this? So it's, and then the pot farm. Again, I ask you. <laughs> I, I was thinking there might have been, um, because the Italian winemaking uh, book, um, uh, it's called Barolo, and I lived in the Piedmont region of Italy for about six months out of a tent, uh, out of the garden of this local farmhouse. Um, wow. Yeah, I got paid in food and wine because I was illegal. I didn't have papers, so they fed me, and they kept me plenty boozed. And that's uh, and these are the really the top parts of Italy, you know, in yeah. the scenery. No, oh, yeah. And people. It's at the base of the uh, Alps, so um, yeah, it's really, uh, really kind of beautiful. So in Marquette, are you are you growing some? some vines up in a greenhouse there oh, oh. <laughs> good lord no the, the, well yeah we need to build a greenhouse we have we have an outdoor cinder block garden that's very uh low rent and we have a nine-month winter so the growing season is pretty short so <laughs> well, okay well before well let's not go to the even though it would be tempting to spend some time talking about the right. the italian winemaking um and the hierarchies of the pot farm. <laughs> Very curious about these, Matt. I'll have to uh, read these books too. Um, but what we're here yeah. for is preparing the ghost. Right. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about? Um, well, the, the the baby giant squid larvae, mm -hmm. and and maybe how you're coming up with the title for this this book as a way to start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the if you don't mind. No, not not, <laughs> not at all. Um, the uh, the giant squid in its larval state is known as a para larva, um, and uh, I found it sort of fascinating. I'm um, insane over word origins, so uh, I just wanted to see where that came from. I guess, um, and I had never known that larva directly translated into English from Latin means ghost, and para is to prepare. Uh, so to prepare the ghost or preparing the ghost came from uh, that. It's as if um, this tiny little larval squid is preparing um, in that state to be um, eventually something larger than life and Mythic. something yeah, something that straddles the actual and the mythological uh, um, for whatever reason, even though it's existed has been proven time and time again, we're still compelled to force uh, narrative and myth onto the giant squid, um, even though it's real. So it's kind of fascinating. And, and, is, and is that sort of the crux of your what kept your curiosity going about the giant squid? Like why exploring that? Yeah, need or something that we're doing as humans. Absolutely, I'm. I became really curious uh, in my research um, because, as we all know, the the muse occurs during the process and not beforehand. And I just tumbled down the rabbit hole of research, and one thing led to another. And so much of the research that I uncovered about the giant squid um, was tethered to narrative and tethered to obsession and obsessives and I was and I became obsessed with these obsessives who were obsessed with the squid um, and so it's a book about obsession and yeah it's a book about uh, our, our compulsion uh, to mythologize the actual um, specifically in this case the giant squid and so obsessed with the obsessives and so <laughs> the maybe the the king then would be um, Moses Harvey right. or Reverend Moses Harvey or that's how we start right as we're sort of in this imagined m moment with is that how it started how 
And and Papa Dave, really? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Reverend Reverend Moses Harvey was uh, the St. John's Newfoundland Reverend who, in 1874, um, was responsible for the taking of the first ever photograph of the giant squid, which finally rescued it um, completely from the realm of mythology um, and uh, proved its existence, uh, thereby changing the ways in which we engage the construct of the sea monster. Um, and uh, I mean, that's a big deal, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's just a toss-off for you because you've been sort of living with this while you've... Because right. how long did it take to write this book, Matt? Um, what was the... With the research, which is yeah. heavy, and there's even like a, a partial bibliography within like at the early quarter of the book where you're saying, for example, right. this is what I was supposed to have read, and this is... <laughs> sure. It, it, it was daunting. I um, took about two and a half years in total, um, on and off. I... Uh, uh, got hooked up with the Center for Newfoundland Studies at Memorial University in St. John's. And um, oddly enough, the woman who's running it, Joan Ritzy, was Moses Harvey's great-granddaughter. Um, so she was able These to... connections are throughout the book, yeah, aren't they? When yeah. uh, Aren't you like, you're me- it almost, did you feel like you, it was meant to be when you would sort of find these threads? I, I did, I guess. Yeah, it was really strange. Um, but of, of course, as, as writers, we, we kind of bestow upon ourselves the power to manipulate connection between just about anything. Um, but with this, I, I didn't have to do a whole lot of manipulating with a lot of these things. So it was really nice. Um, and uh, she hooked me up with a lot of research that she was legally allowed to send me. And it was like a floor to ceiling stack of papers. And then eventually, um, for a couple of reasons, I had a I had to go to St. John's, Newfoundland, um, one to access some non traveling archives there, um, two to sort of immerse myself in what the filmmaker Werner Herzog likes to call the voodoo of place. And um, then uh, finally to stalk the current <laughs> resident of Moses Harvey's <laughs> At Three house. Devon Row. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Three <laughs> Devon Row. Um, it took a while um, for uh, the old man who's now living there to answer the door and... Um, what happened there kind of changed the course of the book <laughs> because um, I, uh, yeah, just wanted to mention in the first ever photograph of the giant squid, it's in Moses Harvey was this obsessed. Um, he brought it into his house and took it into his bathroom and draped the squid carcass over his bathtub's curtain rod um, in order to display its full size. So I really wanted to see that bathroom. Um, yes. <laughs> no, it makes sense. Yeah. Or, or And even it sounds like you saw the garden, you saw everything like to know sort of the the arc of his of Harvey's life and right. and yeah yeah hmm so and well it's funny cuz it it's it's um cuz if when you said you became obsessed with the obsessives and so thereby then becoming one you're making yourself vulnerable throughout the narrative as well because you're kind of showing your you're just, like you said stalking this guy and that you had pushed the mail slot in and then right. it, you couldn't get it unhinged so then it was left it was obvious that someone had tried to peek in and look into the right. house and so so you're sort of uh implicated in this um obsession yeah um but you're so but you're like a removed from the giant squid because are you because i'm not seeing you going out on a boat you didn't go try to meet up with o'Shea in new zealand is it right yeah like, he, he or, lives in paris now oh, he, um, oh so he's so, come into maybe some better fortunes or maybe maybe so or um, no he's still um 
He's still so wonderfully twitchy. Yeah, Steve O'Shea was one of the um, three folks with um, Kubadera and Edith Witter, the the um, bioluminescence expert, who just a year and a half ago on the Discovery Network, yeah, right? that's right, <laughs> went, went down on that submersible and um, captured the first ever uh, footage on on film of uh, the giant squid in its natural habitat in the deep sea, as widespread as they are. Um, that happened only a year and a half ago, and so uh, I interviewed O'Shea, who um, is just twitchy and wonderful and strange and manic and yeah he just kind of shed a a whole lot of light on what that footage meant and on what Harvey's photograph in a way meant um to him to and him to and us um yeah. Well, yeah in what what ways what did you find most striking about that um about the photograph itself um or or well well talking with O'Shea like when you're thinking oh, yeah. about like cuz cuz in a way you're guiding us through right. something as we this journey with you on in this this giant lyric essay sure um so when you talk with someone else who's kind of trying to frame who the giant squid is right for or to be believed too for so long sure and it um it was really interesting uh because i I spoke with clyde roper who's um also this crazy squid obsessive who used to work for the smithsonian and uh and he's in his 70s now yeah a little older i think actually but um and and not terribly well unfortunately but um he was this obsessed he actually uh somehow immobilized uh humpback whales um, and then attached cameras to their heads uh, so these humpback whales um, <laughs> would dive down and humpback and, cam that's right that's right and so um, and so what uh, Roper was hoping was that he would capture some footage of the giant squid um, via these whales <laughs> so, but never happened because it's weird because it's not as if the humpbacks are the ones where sometimes they've found because um, it would it be a blue whale or some where they've found in the belly of a whale Parts of the giant squid, the or its whales, beak, or yeah. oh, it's the sperm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I guess they weren't as placid as the humpbacks. They couldn't right. maneuver the camera. <laughs> <onto them. laughs> yeah, sperm whales are natural enemies of the giant squid, and um, this this. Uh, artist, the squid artist, I suppose, Glenn Lotz was famous um, for drawing these uh, kind of wonderful mythological battles. The combat. The, the squid and the whale, right? So Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. So are you, um, I guess now that you're on the book tour, Matt, mm-hmm. it's all, you're still living the squid, you know, L-I-V-I-N. Very much so. I, I usually uh, jump from one thing to the next. Uh, I'm, I have a lot of interests and I'm curious about a whole lot of things and um, I can't quite let the squid go. It's strange with the previous two nonfiction books, The Wine and and The Pot Book, um, I, uh, I just kind of moved beyond those very quickly, but somehow... Uh, I'm not going to make a, a you know a horrible joke about you know being coiled within some sort of metaphorical <laughs> the embrace tentacle, of right? the tentacles. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but actually, the Liz, <laughs> our engineer, is wincing now. Yeah, it's horrible. Apparently, Liz, I was going to make that horrible joke. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> I pushed you to it. I really, yeah, so, mm. yeah. That's not fair. <laughs> but but so but it is something that you're still. Well, you're enlivened 
by. Sure. Um, I, I think I'm still tumbling down that rabbit hole in a way. Um, the the story and the obse- the narrative of my own obsession is, is ever-evolving um, with the squid in that um, when I first started writing this book, I thought it was going to be a five-page essay, a, you know, just a short piece. And then once again, one thing led to another, which led to another, and all sorts of these ancillary burrs started attaching themselves to the main thread of squid as if I was walking through a meadow and those burrs were attached themselves to my pant cuffs and I, I know that's a goofy metaphor meadow, no. meadow. Um, but <laughs> I, I never say the word meadow it sounds really <laughs> fluffy I don't know. but um, anyway uh, we're, we're <laughs> skipping now you can't see us everyone but as we're doing this interview <laughs> I, I haven't skipped in a while. That was fun. So I'm a little out of breath now, but that's fine. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what. Let's take a short break, and then we'll pick up on this uh, on, in the meadow when we return. Let's skip during the break. <laughs> okay, okay. Today on Living Writers, um, Matthew Gavin Frank is here. His book, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Matthew Gavin Frank is here. His book, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. Um, Some of you listening might have had the chance, um, because we're taping the show, to have seen Matt when he was at Literati. talking about the book. And if you didn't get a chance and you're listening now, you can head to Literati, um, where I'm sure there's going to be some signed copies awaiting you. Um, My brother was just visiting Matt. And um, while I was inside, I was reading your book. um, And, and so he had to wait in the car. And I said, Oh, well, you can read this while I because he was um, has a master's in marine biology. So I thought he'd be 
interested. So then that night we went to Literati and got a copy of your book because he wanted his own. I wasn't, I was, <laughs> my tentacles were wrapped around the book. No, I, just, I was not going to give it up. Okay. So Thanks, back Steve. to, back to this, this, um, thanks for picking the songs today. Also, Matt, for my the pleasure. program. Yeah, um, it was great to lead off with Octopus. Right. <laughs> Sid, Sid Barrett. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, this crazy, you know, this song itself is kind of a weird descent into madness. So. <laughs> <laughs> Where will this hour go, right? <laughs> and then some Tom Waits I, to get us into the dramatic throatiness of it all. <laughs> we're, we're in it now, T. <laughs> we are. There's no, no looking back, Matt. Right, right. Um, so back to the, back to the meadow. Yeah. Really. <laughs> well, so how did... Um, let me ask a specific question that relates to the meadow. Yeah. Papa Dave, yeah. when did you decide that this was part of the vehicle that, like, the giant squid was the place for Papa Dave as well? It, 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 Which it, seems deeply personal. Sure, yeah. I mean, he was my paternal grandfather who died in 86, and... Uh, it was strange during the process how he kept creeping into the book. Um, it was strange to me, and I kind of had to think about uh, wh why, in a weird way, that he was attaching himself um, in whatever ghostly fashion um, to the narrative of the giant squid. And um, but he, but he I, is a ghost. Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I guess the 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 quick answer is, uh, I well. It doesn't well, have to be he, quick. He, We've got time. Well, he, here's the not quick answer then. Um, <laughs> I uh, I mythologized him in a way, and um, I kind of turned him um, because he died when I was ten. I died in '86, and uh, I basically um, w was dealing in the book with various um, forms of mythologizing, familial mythology, personal mythologies, um, cultural mythologies, um, why uh, we're compelled at certain points in history um, to kill our myths and invent new ones. Um, we basically use our myths until we use them up and occasionally resurrect them um, maybe years later uh, at our convenience um, because we need them. And then we kill them off again when we don't. Um, so it's amazing how uh, our drive to mythologize um, and our myths themselves are ever evolving. And so uh, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about familial myth. And I remembered um, he was a saxophonist. He was a musician uh, in a big... And you have his instrument. Um, I do. Yeah. Yeah. He um, he played uh, most of the woodwinds. But uh, yeah, I have his clarinet, uh, tenor sax, a soprano sax, which is really beautiful. Um, and... Uh, yeah, he played in a big Dixieland jazz band um, in uh, what used to be known as the Borscht Belt, which was um, the Catskill Mountain Resort Circuit in upstate New York. And uh, he predominantly played other people's songs, um, but he wrote one that I know of. And uh, he did what so many other folks back then did when they um, sat down to write songs, and um, that was uh, he tried to start a dance craze. And so um, the one song that he wrote was called Squid Jump, right? <laughs> so, T's waving her arms right now. And, and so um, yeah, that was kind of the Squid Jump. But, um, so, uh, yeah, the song was called Squid Jump, and it was mostly instrumental. 
Um, but to my understanding, during uh, one portion of the song, there was a bridge, and uh, it was kind of drum-driven. There was a drum solo, and uh, the musicians took their horns from their mouths and leaned in, into their microphones and would shout the one line um, <laughs> in unison. And that line is this, do the squid jump wave your arms like this. Um, and actually, one of the working uh, titles of the book um, during the process was Wave Your Arms Like This, um, <laughs> with like an exclamation point, but th- thank, thank God I have an editor. Um, but, so, <laughs> I like that title, too. Right? Oh, thanks. thanks. So, and so the dance was um, the partners would face each other um, and uh, wave their arms in tentacular fashion, you know, and then uh, uh, they would jump in box formation and so um, when they were halfway they would do four jumps and halfway through they were back to back and then at the end they were facing each other again and um, (laughs) they would repeat that one line four times Um, I guess it's two lines do the squid jump wave your arms like this they would say it four times and then yeah they would woo (laughs) the dancers would wave their arms and all of this so um, and that was Papa Dave's yeah yeah and so that is a that's a solid connection it is yeah and so um I, I I was interrogating my own obsession with the giant squid um, throughout as well, and wondering why I was so obsessed. And um, I I was thinking a lot about Papa Dave. I drove an ice cream truck for a while um, around the streets of Chicago. Chicago, yeah. yeah. It was during that awful heat wave um, when I mean, folks were were dying like flies. Um, folks without AC, and so I I had these delusions of grandeur. I was telling myself, I am bringing ice cream to the people um, to, to save them, to keep them cool. Yeah. yeah. And it was this horrible, rickety mail truck, and there was a hole rusted uh, in the bottom of it through which the exhaust would seep. And so I was on like a twelve snow cone a day. And you know, <laughs> you know, a few Lipton iced tea bar uh, they fix um, just to and keep cool. and the the fumes right, right. <laughs> and, and so I, I started thinking about anything cool um, in a giant sort of way. I remember thinking a lot about the ocean and thinking a lot about Papa Dave that summer when driving that ice cream truck. So I I started thinking about my ice cream truck days too, and then um, uncovered oddly enough uh, this strange connection between folks who were obsessed with the giant squid and um, weird ice cream narratives. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Well, there's so many of these these strange connections or right. that become threads in the book. Sure. Yeah. That oh, or in, because it's a lyric essay, mm-hmm. right? Is that fair to say? Because yeah, it's a yeah. the 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 fragmented nature of it, and sure. and um, and when you said earlier, Matt, that. Papa Dave just kind of kept coming back mm-hmm. like into this. Mm-hmm. Um, can we can we can you t- talk a little bit about the structure of it? Because then when you were when you were drafting it, mm-hmm. is it something that you felt like there came? I, I mean, because it's because it, you wouldn't necessarily know if it was all came in pieces or then you kind of had this architectural plan for it where you wove pieces of the Moses Harvey story mm-hmm. within it as the main girdinger. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, let me let you just go with that. Sure, the, the, I mean, the, the story behind Moses Harvey's photograph um, was, was certainly the main thread, um, was like the thickest, I guess, portion of the braid. Um, I think structurally, yeah, it's a, a braided essay. Um, there are a few different threads that are just intertwined. And as the book progresses, um, the connections between them um, become more and more clear. And then at the end, um, I, ideally, structurally speaking, um, it'll have like this 
singular impact, a mosaic effect. Um, like, you're, like you're looking at the, you know, a, a tapestry or something. And so when you're up close, you see all of the individual threads, but you take a few steps back and you see the full design. So structurally speaking, I was, I was hoping to build the book that way, um, too. So, uh, it's, it's funny, um, the the photograph Moses Harvey's photograph is actually in the front of the book. Yes. Um, and... too, it's too bad we don't have one of those humpback humpback cams here right, where right. we could show it to everyone. Yeah, and um, that that photograph is hanging in the Smithsonian. And when I I saw the photograph, and it's it's next to an actual specimen of the of the giant squid, not that one, but a different one. Um, uh, it's encased in this thermoplastic coffin, and it's kind of desiccated and and sort of unimpressive looking. But the the photograph itself is what bowled me over. And there were only three lines of uh, text that were serving as the photographs caption and it basically said um, first ever photograph of the giant squid Moses Harvey 1874 St. John's Newfoundland and I jotted that down and uh, when I got back home I uh Googled that and um, found that there was a lot written about Moses Harvey, but he usually only got a, a paragraph and at most maybe two to three pages of text in, um, you know, other giant squid books or other books mm-hmm. about Newfoundland. And nobody had ever uh, surprisingly um, detailed the behind the scenes goings on that um, basically told the story behind the photograph. And so I... I wanted to do that, and it was a lot of fun. So doing my research, I sort of felt like a PI, um, picking up scraps here and scraps there. And when you're picking up all of these scraps, um, by default, um, all of these other things, again, start um, uh, – all of these other ideas and thoughts and threads um, are attracted to those scraps. So um, I felt – You're creating sort of this magnetism for the ideas, right? Because you're open to seeing what could be. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not to um, not to like just speak in cryptic metaphors or anything, but I, I felt like with all of these threads um, and engaging all of these other things, uh, it, it certainly informed the squid because we're taking um, Moses Harvey's photograph and the giant squid and we're holding it up against these other seemingly dissimilar things. They're not, but seemingly dissimilar things to see how the squid and the narrative of behind the photograph reacts to those different things. Um, is it an attraction? Is it some sort of electric collision? Is it a repulsion? And um, what does the squid look like? How does the squid morph and change and react, or at least the narrative of the giant squid when held up against that other sort of seemingly dissimilar thing? And what can this seemingly dissimilar thing teach us uh, about the squid itself um, in ways that um, a direct engagement, because there is a direct engagement too, um, won't necessarily uh, uh, you know, tell us. So um, it's kind of like sometimes... Um, things are brighter, like starlight, um, out of the periphery. Um, and when you look straight at it, it dims again. So um, that peripheral engagement became important, too. And that seems to be also about what you were speaking about with the mosaic effect when you're finishing the book, mm-hmm. like the, the experience of that, like the feeling. Very much so. Um, I, I felt like a, a lot of these pieces of research um, served to draw a chalk outline around the squid, and the the trick was finding the right blend of chalk to evoke the body, uh, and um, and to maintain the mystery of the squid, too, uh, because it is still so mysterious, and we still know so little about it, and we still know so little about our own compulsion to mythologize it. Um, so the book wanted to maintain that mystery as well, rather than... Um, 
you know, just drag it down and turn it into something mundane. <laughs> yes. And there's even a part in the book where you say that there's something about the um, what is the ecstatic and but then there's like but then sometimes oh it's near um, where mediocrity then comes in instead of yeah. like pushing out that what is who is having the ecstatic experience something I forget what that line of but like shoving the ecstatic up into the crevices yes. of mon- mundanity or something <laughs> which, which, so, just, which sounds vulgar but it uh, sure yeah. does. That's a, especially with the hand gestures there Matt. oh goodness no I'm just kidding I'm just kidding everybody that's all right I just that it we yes that's exact I, it's near hold on I just saw it darn it well, we should go to break. Let's go to break. Maybe I'll find it during the break, right? <laughs> um, today, Living Writers. Um, uh, it, I'm so glad to have Matthew Gavin Frank here. His book, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Matthew Gavin Frank is here in the studio. His book, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. That song choice was brilliant. I feel like we're we're now in the depths. Yeah, yeah, we've gone down in the submersible. <laughs> <laughs> We have. Um, and, and so, Matt, we're at, before the break, mm-hmm. we were talking about some of um, where these the opportunities for I feel like there's many in, within your book, within your essay, there's um, many opportunity opportunities for revelation. And I think that's what you were talking about earlier when you were saying that the discovery is in the process of the writing. Like you didn't know what this was going to be. Right. Um, So I don't know. Would you would you read a part of the the 
your essay for us. Sure. I'll, I'll read a, a really short section. And since we talked about that line before the break, um, and I screwed it up, I reversed it, but um, <laughs> so, um, it, it ends this one section. So I'll just read the paragraph um, before that. And uh, um, so what, what happened, um, the, the giant squid in question that Moses Harvey photographed um, ended up getting entangled in fishermen's herring nets and it thrashed itself to death. And so um, they brought the carcass aboard. Um, they knew that um, Moses Moses Harvey was interested in all, I, I think, um, all sorts of, the way they, the fishermen said it, I believe the quote was, he was after all sorts of strange things of the sea. Um, and so uh, the previous year, there were fishermen that brought him a, a, a dismembered tentacle. Little Tommy. Yeah, Little, had little hat, Tommy Pico. Hacked it off. With the hatchet, yeah. that's right. Yeah, this, this little 12-year-old boy, or so the story goes, hacked off um, the tentacle of a giant squid that attacked um, his father's fishing boat. And so uh, they brought it to Moses Harvey, that tentacle, and he paid him 10 bucks, um, which, which in 1874 a... Newfoundland was a fortune. Yes. Um, and so these fishermen had the entire specimen, and they were like, well, if he paid 10 bucks for a tentacle, what's he going to pay for the entire specimen? And the answer is also 10 bucks. Um, but so so he, he sold it to them and Moses Harvey um, wanted to be on board the ship as they transported the carcass from uh, uh, Portugal Cove to the port of St. John's, where then he proceeded to um, put it onto um, a flatbed uh, pulled by horses and bring it to his house for the picture. But um, what so, an amazing spectacle that must have been through the town. It must too. have been incredible. <laughs> yeah. And this was the reverend as mm -hmm. well. Right. Who had been, who gives sermons and. Uh, oddly enough, um, it's uh, historically. Um, churchly folk, uh, you know, ecclesiastics were attracted to the giant squid and attracted to its narrative. Because um, of the mystery, perhaps. That's right. It was actually known um, colloquially as the devil fish oh, uh, yes. because uh, before it was known as the giant squid um, because of um, churchly narrative. They used the giant squid in a weird way um, to kind of perpetuate these sorts of, uh, perpetuate like this fear mongering and all of this. But um, uh, so um, but not Moses Harvey. No, no. He was an amateur naturalist who, uh, he did, you know, make a monster of it in some of his writings, but there was an obvious reverence there as well. Go figure, the reverend was reverent. Um, so... <laughs> Um, but I, I could keep talking and, oh, no, and, yeah, no, and, and building up to this, but I could, uh, yeah, I could um, go ahead and read this uh, uh, portion. It's taking place on board that ship. Um, the squid carcass is there, the fishermen and Moses Harvey. Um, and to be sure, the fishermen remembered first seeing this beast entangled in their nets, belching black ink. How they collectively tossed the grapnel at the flailing body, the sharp flukes and barbs of which sunk into the soft flesh with hardly a sound. How they tied a stout rope to the grapnel's assault hook. How, shoreside, they tied the other end of the rope to a tree to keep the squid, still flailing, but quietly now, the tentacles making soft slaps on the water from going out with the tide. How they watched as it died, keeping a respectful distance from the long tentacles which ever and anon darted out like great tongues from the central mass. How the beast went still as the water receded. How they cinched up their orange slickers. How they thought of numbers and quotas and nets and their suppers. 
Even while Harvey, perhaps fell to his knees, brought his cracked face to the tentacles, muttered words like glorious and sentences like I'll take you home, the fishermen smoked and remembered their work remembered their children at the tables in their own Newfoundland homes, upon which they needed to place something edible. This remembering wasn't manufactured as much as it was necessary. They picked up their nets and frowned and forgot, as we all do, shoving mundanity up into the crevices of the ecstatic. Thanks. Yeah. So so those are those moments where... It's it's talking, it's moving from something very, well, move very, like we have the death scene of the squid too, right. which is, is so sad. I was realizing as you were reading it um, and then, and then moving and attaching it to something that is like a, the part of the human condition as well as the natural world. Sure. Yeah. Um, because um, our, our narratives illuminate our condition um, or at least... Um, our telling of them. Uh, and so the squid, by definition, I think is um, because that's one of our, our narratives is is kind of leashed to commentary on the condition. Sure. And it seems like and in that, like if you're talking about something that that's, is that intense or the experience of like a mythic creature that you're encountering, for, definitely for um, Moses Harvey, um, his experience of it, there is... I guess as each of us are walking around, like there's only, you can only spend so much time ecstatic <laughs> in the ecstatic right. because otherwise I think we're, we just, we're overloaded. We're like yeah. sputter and whatever happens ex to us. Or look, look to saints. Look what happens to those right. saints, exactly. folks. Right. This is a public warning. They, they usually lose their heads, right? <laughs> like, um, but, um, not just figuratively. So, uh, but yeah. Um, yeah. Ecstasy's tiring. <laughs> you know? and, so. and so it is sort of this, but it's so sad to hear it like in this, this mediocrity or something like what, um, I don't know. It just... I mean, how how many times, you know, have we heard that there's going to be this incredible meteor shower and we go out there and we watch it and we watch it and we watch it and we can't quite assimilate it. And eventually, even though it's still going on, we think, well, it's time to go home and watch some TV uh, and all of this. And so um, we yeah. need to shove mundanity up into the crevices of the ecstatic <laughs> like that sometimes, too, in order to survive or else we'll uh, we'll exhaust ourselves. <laughs> sure. And and it seems like um, this has reminded me of one of the quotes um, that you have in in the book, Matt, um, by Joan Didion. Mm -hmm. The um, like we let's see, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Yeah, famous Joan Didion quote. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's we're storytellers. Um, we make narrative in order to contextualize uh, the chaos, right? I mean, in, in various ways. I mean, um, whether it's religion, whether it's myth, uh, whether it's writing books, whether it's painting a picture, um, whatever, it, it's, it's all this ever-evolving creation of pseudo-truth. Um, and we need to do that so we could get by. So in, in a weird way, we just don't tumble off into the chaos. Um, we we need context. Um, we're a species that demands context, and that's what our stories, in a lot of ways, do for us. Um, is, is provide that sort of context. Um, our stories, our myths, right? They make the world manageable um, for us, at least. And I think it's not just writers that 
like, I mean, it's for everyone. (laughs) But then there's a great moment in the book, too, where someone says, are you a marine biologist? And you say, no, you're a writer. And they seem disappointed, you know. Uh, yeah, that's happened a couple times on the book tour so far. Like, have you studied marine biology and all of this? And I'm like, no, no, I actually studied creative writing. And then you see the eyes downturn and just like, hmm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. What's that about? I wonder. Right. 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 I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, claims to different, you know, sets of expertise. Uh, yeah. And I wonder, but maybe that maybe makes sense to me if they haven't read the book yet. Sure. So then they think, oh, well, why, what is the claim to expertise, right? But then the book is doing something else. It's not trying to be the definitive textbook on the giant squid that's your next book because it's not letting go of you right (laughs) it's but that that book's that book's out there i mean yeah there there are so many of those books you know there are many like um and i research them exhaustively like i'm i'm obsessed um with many things scientific um before i detoured into creative writing i mean i um uh, thought I was going to go into the sciences. My mom famously likes to tell this story about how I, you know, was hell bent on being a paleontologist when I was a kid. Um, I wanted to unearth dinosaur fossils, you know. Um, but uh, again, and that's in in the book too, where you say, as mm-hmm. kids, we like we have we kind of reckon with the dinosaur as mm-hmm. like something that terrifies us. Like it seems like we need that. Sure. And um, oddly enough, we know more about the dinosaurs than we do about the giant squid. Um, We don't share the earth with the dinosaurs um, during this particular moment in history, Um, but we do share the earth with the giant squid. And yet somehow um, we know a whole lot more about the dinosaurs than we do about the giant squid. Um, It's so elusive. And it's in every ocean, you said. Right. It's it's incredibly widespread. There are... um, larger beasts in all of the oceans and yet this is the animal um, that is uh, the basis for our kraken and um, there's a portion of the book that um, asks why and um, there are multiple portions of the book that examine why because there's um, I was sort of very saddened to see that there's an elephant that's now extinct or maybe there's one and I thought oh maybe now by the time it's published the elephant is gone too right it's um, the Nisna elephant um, K-N-Y S-N-A I think that's how it's spelled um, and um, my wife is from South Africa and uh, we um, go back there every couple of years and we actually um, hiked in the Nisna forests where this um, one uh, remaining Nisna elephant is rumored to roam Um, it hasn't been spotted in quite a while um, so it may just be rumor now uh, and may just be narrative who knows that there's, there's just one laughter maybe it's just yeah just hang, you, hanging out deeper into the woods than we went <laughs> so. and you use this example as if it's the most rare then this creature should have been the right. mythic one but. sure Well, let's take a short break and we'll come back. Today, Matthew Gavin Frank is here. His book, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. I'm T. Edsel. We'll be right back. Let me gaze upon your body.
others all have this false image of you. I said the others have this false image they can't see through. Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Matthew Gavin Frank is here. Um, his book, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. Um, a quick thank you to Peter Miller um, from Norton for sending the book. Um, yeah, this this is, I really, I love your book. <laughs> Thanks, uh, I'm glad, and I'm glad that it seems like the squid isn't letting go of you because then I think... So what form does that take? Because are you still researching? Or are you still amassing? Do you have a squid notebook, Matt? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot of questions about the squid, um, you know, in conjunction with the release of the book. So I am still researching. Um, I'm always online uh, looking up, you know, new squid news and new giant squid news and things like that. Um, I'm reading about the giant squid. I'm still reading about Newfoundland. Uh, there's this guy, John Gimlet, that wrote a book called Theater of Fish. Uh, that I'm reading about. Um, I'm still theater of fish. Theater of fish. Yeah, uh, it's about many things. Um, the, the declining cod populations mm. in Newfoundland, among among them, and um, but it's 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 a good piece of travel writing. Um, it, it was strange to me how you said it was at the Cornell. Um, it was something like CCE where yeah. they just there was because of de- declining fish populations. They said, well, why don't we sell squid to the American public for the culinary delights, but we can't, we should call it calamari. Right. They they created our obsession with calamari. And, as an appetizer. Uh, that's right, as an appetizer. Um, and now it, it was um, typically used as bait uh, or thrown to dogs and all of this. And because um, the fish populations were, you know, decreasing um, due to overfishing, of course, um, they were like, well, how can we make a buck on this? And it was just insane advertising. Um, can't call it squid because nobody's going <laughs> to eat that. So we might as well use the Italian name for squids, calamari. Um, and now you see it at TGA Fridays, which is kind of crazy. It's, like ev- it's everywhere, isn't it? Right, right. And a technique for, that um, that you use throughout the essay, mm-hmm. um, Matt, you say, um, for example, um, 
Like you do these additions where you'll say it's so this many plates, like you'll do these exponential calculations for these ideas and then connect it and relate it. And that's one of your ways of building threads. Sure. Um, what, can, yeah. Can you tell us about that yeah, technique ab- a little bit? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always been obsessed with math, uh, too, um, as a creative writer i mean go for it, but yeah. um, <laughs> um, i mean because it is essentially You're not one dimensional so, right? certainly not <laughs> it is, it's essentially a language of course, right i mean so um uh, yeah it's it's not often taught that way but occasionally it is i mean math as a foreign language a way to understand concepts um that you wouldn't otherwise be able to understand with the language and relationship that we have at hand right and so um i think a lot in numbers i'm i'm kind of i love numbers uh and i love mathematical theory um and so um we were talking about ways in which to bridge seemingly dissimilar things or way, ways to link them up well numbers are a great way to do that uh too oftentimes um in in, in various ways um I uh, I was working on um, and this didn't you know this wasn't didn't get conflated into a book this was like a ten page essay but um, it's this mathematician Kurt Gödel uh, who came up with um, uh, the incompleteness theorem uh, which I mean to to simplify it's a, basically a mathematical proof that nothing is ever complete everything mm. is is ever incomplete um, and it's really wonderfully depressing and this theorem comments on the human condition and <laughs> Gödel himself was a depressive and then doing. Some some research about Godel um, found out that he was a silk fetishist. He was in, in love with silk Threads? as a material. Like, yeah, <laughs> he would cloak himself in silk. He would wear silk beneath his outer clothes. He would sleep on silk sheets. Um, mm. He felt as if um, that was uh, a cloth that inspired his mathematical thinking, and so on and so forth. So the essay was actually about um, the incompleteness theorem, notions of incompleteness, and, and silk, uh, in a way. And Gödel was um, he was the connection by default. Yeah, the 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 artifact, if you could call a human being an artifact, yeah. um, that connected those um, two others. Yeah, um, But math is fascinating. And mathematicians are fascinating more often than not. So is that one of your future projects then, too? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Right, right now, I've, um, I've been talking to another uh, writer friend of mine um, from Minnesota, Karen Hayes, her name is, wonderful oh, she's essayist. she's in the book, yeah. She is, yeah. We, we correspond often. Was, was and... that about um, the suicide segment? Yeah, that was about the suicide segment, yeah. And so, the um, dogs? Yeah, Karen and I were talking a lot about um, uh, suicide because the jury is out on how Moses Harvey died. And this is, I'm talking about how there is, is there really a truth, um, um, a single truth? I mean, I did extensive research um, for this book, but there are various narratives surrounding Harvey's death, um, documented narratives. And um, it, there are even conflicting obituaries. Uh, some say he he died accidentally. Um, others say he committed suicide. And so, uh, uh, Karen Hayes was the one who um, she was writing an essay of her own on suicides. Oddly enough, and as it turns out, Newfoundlands um, are the only breed of dog um, known to kill themselves. Um, they're expert swimmers, but sometimes um, they just stop swimming and. Um, die and kill themselves, um, even if they're fully capable of escaping the water, which is kind of strange. So. But I, re- I 
you were going to say something else about Karen Hayes because you're going to work with her on a project. Oh, we were. Um, this, no, this yes. is, I, I've been thinking about, is it Manticore? Is that the, the tiger that attacked Roy um, from Siegfried and Roy? Uh, working on an essay um, on Manticore because um, strangely, I mean, doing um, some research, uh, this particular tiger, Siegfried and Roy, Edvard Munch of the Scream fame, uh, and people who are obsessed with the moon um, are very, very clearly connected um, in, in all sorts of strange, um, not only serpentine ways, but some direct ways, too. It's, it's kind of unnerving. So Karen and I have been emailing back and forth about this, and we've been talking about collaborating on something possibly, um, but that's back, back burner stuff. Oh, man. Well, what's on your front burner? Well, the book tour. The book tour, yeah. But with the writing. Um, I uh, actually just um, gave my agent um, a manuscript, and she's taking it to um, uh, live right at at Norton um, soon, I think. And, uh, well, I spent most of my work life in restaurant kitchens. Um, I left home at 17 and bopped around for a while working in a string of restaurant kitchens. And so I've always thought about food in weird ways, I think. and uh, my first book was kind of a food and wine book. And then I deliberately didn't want to write about food after that because I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be the food writing guy necessarily. Um, but I kind of found my way back to it. It's um, 50 uh, short essays, one for each of the um, U.S. states. And it takes um, uh, uh, food stuff typical of that state and then... Um, interrogates it and allows it to bump and grind with state history and so on and so forth. And so there are these kind of weird braided essays um, uh, that, I mean, this, this sounds overblown and maybe I do have delusions of grandeur that at the, at the end it becomes this like revisionist take on U.S. history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Right? That's great. You mean yeah by delusions of no. grandeur? <laughs> No, it's great. Like it's a great, it's a great idea. That's, it sounds like it would be also um, really like such a thing, like such a great thing to read. Like it just sounds like something that you'd. I, I'm sold on it. <laughs> we're, we're, I think so. We're working on getting essays, um, er, essays. I mean, uh, recipes rather. And it's because uh, you've got. Did you go to each of the fifty states then, Matt, when you were doing this, and to. I did, Was yeah. It part, okay. And um, I also interviewed um, a host of folks um, in each of the states, too, um, historians and non-historians. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we're going to uh, get recipes, and I think it's going to be this really weird avant-garde cookbook. Um, so uh, so is it going to be massive? Is it a bit of a tome, then? Because if you've got the history yeah. and the narrative of maybe, do you include some of the narrative of discovery, like you you going to talk with the people? Is that also a component? Like it is when you're going to number three, Devon Row, Right. I find, you know, there, there is there is some of that. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, uh, it, one of the later passes, I tried to comb myself out of a lot of it and concentrate on the folks in the state in hand. But um, by default, um, I, I creep in there here and you there. Do. OK. <laughs> well, hopefully not a ghost. Yeah, a real, very real uh, Matthew Gavin Frank presence there. Right. The guiding hand. Oh, well, that's so that's something for everyone to look for. But in the meantime, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer is on is on shelves everywhere. Yeah. Right? And you're on tour. So check out um, MatthewGFrank.com mm-hmm. um, for places where Matt will be coming 
to a bookshop near you if if you're lucky because um, it's a great book um, and I, I think it's interesting to know that you are still if the giant squid still has you the element of mystery still has you Matt I can't get away <laughs> <laughs> But you're not even trying. That's my sense of it. I don't think you're trying. Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah, I've, um, I've, I fall in love with the objects of my research all the time, and they're really tough to let go. <laughs> oh, Matt, thanks for being here today and talking with me. Thanks so much for having me, T. Anytime, anytime. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Thanks to the Liz for engineering. Um, today on Living Writers, you've been listening to Matthew Gavin Frank, his book, Preparing the Ghost. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Thank you.